This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Every unhappy oil-producing nation is unhappy in its own way, but all are touched by the resource curse, the power of oil to exacerbate existing problems and create new ones. In his new book, Crude World, The Violent Twilight of Oil, our guest today, Peter Moss, presents a vivid portrait of the troubled world oil has created. Moss is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and has reported from the Middle East, Asia, South America, and Africa. He has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, The Washington Post, and Slate. Peter Moss, welcome to Weekly Signals. Great to be with you. Now, you're in San Diego today. I'm in San Diego today because I was here to do a talk last night, and I'm going to Los Angeles uh, later today, and then I'll be in the Bay Area on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Well, well, thanks for coming out here to promote your book. Now, you're going to be at the Skirball Center in L.A. That's tomorrow night at uh, 7.30. Is that right? Exactly, the Skirball Center. Uh, I'm giving a talk about my book and about oil. Now, how's that been going? How has it been received? It's been fantastic, actually. I mean, uh, you know, I worked on this book for eight years, and I began it in 2001 by going to Lafayette, Louisiana, and, and looking for a job as a roughneck in the oil industry there. And um, if you could see me now, you'd know that I'm not a roughneck material, really, and I didn't get one of those jobs. But I've been working on it for a long time and going to all these oil countries, you know, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Venezuela, Russia, Nigeria. And so it's just, you know, as an author and somebody who's worked for a long time on an issue that he believes a, a lot in, it's been really good to kind of come out with this book and, and be talking to people, including people in the oil industry or whatnot, and, and have them listen and, and appreciate it. Now, now, what inspired you in 2001 to take this on? Was it your, your past work, or was this a, just something else? Was it near 9-11? What was the, the core inspiration here? It was, it was a continuation of my past work, really. I covered the war in Bosnia and written a book about it called Love Thy Neighbor, and then had gone on after that, which was published in 1996, to cover some other conflicts. And I really decided, okay, I wanted my next book to be not about a war itself, because I had done that with my book about Bosnia, but about one of the causes of war, one of the, the causes of, of poverty. And when I looked around, I realized that in terms of a lot of the wars and issues that I'd covered, oil was always mentioned. I mean, in Bosnia, you know, which was in Sarajevo under siege by Serb forces, I remember Bosnians saying to me, you know, if only we had oil, then America would care. But then when I was in the Middle East, people would say, like, if only we didn't have oil, America wouldn't, in, wouldn't invade us and other countries as well. And so I realized that there's this subject, oil, which is implicated in, in, in everything that happens in the world, uh, good and bad. And, but it, a lot of the implications were kind of vague. It's all about oil or it's not about oil. So I decided in early 2001 that I would write a book about oil. And I initially thought that the way I would do it in order to make it interesting, because oil... I wasn't really writing about oil itself. You know, I mean, oil is just this black substance, and it has no voice or army or dogma of its own. That the way that I would bring it alive and how it affects us and how it shapes us is by, by getting jobs in the industry. But then I decided after 9-11 and after kind of oil became a major international issue, particularly with the invasion of Iraq, that I would just go at it head-on, go into these countries and talk to people and write about how their lives and how their destinies were shaped by oil. 
Now, I, I'm just curious because you just you mentioned Iraq, and obviously there was an awful lot of speculation leading up to the invasion of, of Iraq. And given the kind of disconnect that a lot of us felt uh, over 9/11 and the connection with Iraq, and the vehement denials on the part of the administration that it had anything to do with oil, including Donald Rumsfeld saying that's ridiculous to even bring it up. What is your conclusion now that you've had some time to think about it, research it? How much? It, uh, of an impact did the that Iraq having the second largest reserve of oil in the world have on us invading Iraq? Well, you know, after spending a lot of time there um, and going to other countries where you know invasion and coups have been a part of existence along with oil, the way that I kind of like to ask the question isn't whether a war is about oil, but how it's about oil. Mm. Because when you kind of say, like, is the war about oil or not, then the answers are yes or no. Mm -hmm. And it gets very dogmatic, black and white. But actually, it, it can be very subtle. You know, in Iraq, for example, in 1990, 91, the famous Persian Gulf War, when Saddam Hussein's army invaded Kuwait, and then the United States with its allies went into Kuwait to push Saddam Hussein out, there was just, like, no doubt on anybody's side this was all about oil. I mean, Saddam Hussein wanted Kuwait's oil, and then America and its allies did not want Saddam Hussein to control Kuwait's oil and also perhaps threaten Saudi Arabia's oil. No doubt. 100% about oil. In the case of 2003, it was really quite fascinating because I, I, I covered the invasion of Iraq, and I was actually at Firdos Square when the statue of Saddam Hussein was taken down, and then the next day I went to the oil ministry. And of course, this is in the immediate immediate aftermath of, of the statue coming down and Americans arriving in Baghdad. Baghdad itself was kind of aflame. It was, it was looting all over the place, moving around from one place to the other was very dangerous because there, were, there was no controlling you know, military or legal authority, really. And I went to the oil ministry, and amidst this city that was just anarchy, the oil ministry was surrounded by American troops. It was the only place, quite famously, that had this kind of protection. And there were Iraqis outside of it who were oil technocrats who worked in the ministry who couldn't get in because the Americans had surrounded it. And they literally kind of grabbed my sleeve and they said, look, you know, the Americans here, they're protecting the oil ministry. Nothing else is being protected. It is all about oil. And actually, though, I think in 2003, I went across the river a few days later to the major oil refinery that Baghdad has, which actually was not protected in the immediate aftermath of the American arrival and where it was chaotic and where there was this, finally, this American captain who arrived with a, a a platoon of, of soldiers to help protect the refinery. And, and he himself was totally flummoxed because he had not been trained or prepared for this. He just kind of kept saying to me, look, I'm an airborne soldier. I'm paid to and trained to jump out of planes and shoot people, but here I am running a refinery. And that kind of anecdotally kind of made me think, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe oil wasn't the absolutely only, only element involved in the invasion in 2003. And so I do think that oil was kind of central, but that the issue of weapons of mass destruction, though the evidence was concocted and massaged, nonetheless that there was a fear on the part of some officials, even though it was an unfounded fear, that played into the calculations so that, you know, it wasn't 100% about oil, but, you know, oil was a major factor to be sure. Well, we're speaking with Peter Moss. The book is Crude World, The Violent Twilight of Oil. I'm going to offer a slightly different uh, uh, perspective on this. Sure. In my, in my opinion, you're, I, I agree with what you, the, you've said, is that oil isn't the reason, but certainly is sort of influences what's, what happens in these situations. But in, in my mind, given that the, the recent uh, uh, agreements that have been that, that were put in front of the Iraqi, the current Iraqi government, and it's been our 
it's really been our thrust for the last year to get them to sign these agreements, to bring in outside oil companies to develop their oil fields. It's, it's not inconsistent to me that the United States wasn't interested necessarily in protecting the oil infrastructure of Iraq. But they were interested in the oil reserve, and for that, for them, for us to be able to to force them into signing these agreements and then bringing in our own people to develop these reserves is not inconsistent with what you just said. Yeah, and you know, this is something that's going to be an absolutely great debate that yeah. that is never going to be settled until maybe a hundred years when absolutely everything is on the table right. in terms of documents and 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 whatnot. But you know, it was really interesting because. Iraq had been you know, kind of the international outlaw for, for quite a long time, and yeah. so its oil industry had decayed. And when I got inside of the oil industry, finally, like after about three or four days, the, the American soldiers started letting Iraqis come in to begin to, to work there. I talked with a couple of the senior technocrats there, and it was really interesting because, and they're just oil men. They're not political. They're not bathists or anything like that. They're just oil men. And oil men just want to basically kind of like get the oil flowing. Yeah. And these guys said to me, they said, look, you know, we've been under sanctions for such a long time, and now, you know, we can finally work with companies that actually know how to extract oil really well, rather than these, you know, kind of shady companies that Saddam Hussein forced us to work with. And so, they, in a way, actually, we're looking forward to working with particularly American companies, which isn't to say that, you know, the American government didn't itself have intentions or whatever. But the, the, the fact that foreign companies are now going into Iraq and that some of them are American, to me, isn't surprising because... Even the Iraqi oilmen want to work with the, the foreign companies that have the best technology. And the, and the American companies, I mean, of course, they're happy to go in there. But, you know, one thing, too, is that if, if you invade a country to kind of control its oil and get the big contracts for your, country, for your companies, in the case of the Persian Gulf War, again, entirely about oil, actually afterwards Kuwait, which, you know, America had liberated and Kuwait was supposed to be so... You know, full of gratitude to America. These big production sharing contracts, which are the ones that the American oil companies or any oil company wants because it gives them part ownership of the oil. Kuwait refused to give these to any foreign companies. It continued to have its national company kind of be in charge and just use American companies as like subcontractors. So anybody who was aware, and certainly Dick Cheney and others, being oilmen, knew what the precedent was in Kuwait probably knew that, look, you know, if we invade, nonetheless, we're still going to get slightly shafted in the sense of the the, the country is not going to just hand over its oil resources to us, and it's probably not a good idea to go in there expecting that to happen. Well, the world's so much more sophisticated than it was back when the British controlled the Middle East, and people now understand that there are all kinds of ways, uh, business and otherwise, to control the fate of your own oil. If you, a very powerful, a a small group of very powerful people within these countries is able to do that. I want to shift a little bit away. I want to shift away from Iraq because your book is not just about this. It's about uh, Nigeria. It's about Ecuador. It's about a lot of different areas around the world. And and let's explore some of those as well. Let's go over to to Ecuador and what's going on there with with Chevron. Uh, How did you get in touch with that story? What was the the lead-in for that for you? Well, I knew that um, Texaco had been extracting oil for decades um, in Ecuador. And after Texaco was acquired by Chevron, this lawsuit that had been filed in the early 1990s in America actually kind of uh, took hold in Ecuador now. And it was making headway. The The trial was going on, and there was a judge in Ecuador that was going around to all of these spills and places where Texaco had extracted oil. 
to see what the damage was. And so I went down to Ecuador to the Oriente region, which is where Texaco had operated, which used to be kind of this beautiful Amazonian region. And, and as a result of 30 years of oil extraction and you know settlers moving in or whatnot, it's now just this kind of steamy infection of, 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 of oil facilities and roads and burned land, etc. And so I went down there to see what the conditions really were. And I, I did what was called, um, by local environmental activists call it the toxic tour, which is just basically kind of driving around. And it's quite remarkable. You know, I, I, would, I drove like into this kind of secondary jungle. I was on a, a dirt road and kind of stopped at a dirt road and, and, and then kind of hacked through the jungle for just like 100 or 200 yards. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, there's this like, you know, small lake of oil that's been there for God knows how long. There's no oil facility around. It was just dumped there. And this is kind of the problem that now this law case is trying to resolve. The oil that had been extracted, there was a lot that was spilled into the, the ground. There was a lot that was put into the water, and nobody ever cleaned it up. And, you know, I went to one farmer's land and just with a, a shovel just kind of overturned some dirt. And just after one shovel full, there was oil that came up out of the ground. And so now this, this court case is about to render a verdict, which probably is going to go against Chevron, which is, you know, screaming and kicking about it, saying that the process has been unfair, hasn't been open, and that the courts are, are biased against it, which and it's an intriguing situation of kind of international politics about how the, the worm turns or whatever the metaphor is, because back in the old days when the regimes down there were very, very pro-American and very kind of pro-American corporations, there was no way for any individual, for environmental groups or whatever, to lodge a case against a major oil company. But now it has turned around, and indeed the courts are incredibly sympathetic to these cases. And so Chevron now seems likely to be hit with a, a multi-billion dollar verdict. Was it, I, I forget, is, is uh, Ecuador's president, is that Correa? I, I exactly, mean, uh, Correa. Correa. Correa, now, and, and I, we happened, uh, we do, Nathan and I do another show, and we interviewed uh, Joe Berlinger, and he just did a documentary on this called Crude. Right. Yeah, exactly. Appropriately called crude, and uh, and it and it is just uh, they have thousand. They said over a thousand oil pits, they call them, or oil pools, and they're calling this the essentially the equivalent of an Amazonian Chernobyl. It's just uh, devastating. You you saw it firsthand. I'm sure I'm sure you can attest uh, just what a devastating impact it's had. Sure, I, w I went on one of these. Um, uh, uh judicial inspections or one of the sites of the judicial yeah. inspections and it was there was an oil facility with a pumping station or whatever and there was a, a you know a, a pool of oil which was which was fine there's always going to be waste oil you know that comes out of the ground and you're supposed to put it into pits that have you know lining or that are cement on the bottom so it doesn't seep down and this is just kind of a, a natural pool that was dug into the ground with no lining but then kind of most worrisome is that it had overflowed and there were just like kind of uh, two other pits that were not even kind of like official pits just oil had flowed into them or just kind of seeping into the ground. Now, these were facilities that were initially built by Texaco, but now are run by the Ecuadorian national company. And so Chevron's defense basically is, look, you know, these, these, these sites that you're seeing now that look so terrible, they're not ours. They're right. being run by the national Ecuadorian company. But, right. you know, the argument is, no, wait a minute, you built these. Right. And this is the way they operated. And this is something that's been going on for 30 years. It's not new. Texaco, when it left, did not leave a pristine, wonderful oil installation, oil facilities, oil structures in its place. And just for our listeners to know that the settlement as is has come uh, is a 24 or 27 billion dollar settlement against Chevron which obviously they're finding. But uh, it's not a it's not a settlement actually that's the estimate from uh, uh, an expert that the court hired. The oh. actual verdict itself hasn't come yet. Okay. I misunderstood. Okay, well they there's there's South America. 
Yeah. So we've got the Middle East, we've got South America. Uh, what most people don't understand or realize is that we get a significant percentage of our oil from Africa. Exactly. Well, we get, and Nigeria is kind of has traditionally been the largest supplier, African supplier of, of oil to us. And that's, and that's really the most kind of distressing and, and depressing story of all. Um, because I went into the Niger Delta, which is where most of this Nigerian oil comes from and where there's now basically a war going on. And the situation overall in Nigeria, and this is where it just gets to be a, a terrible picture of a country whose oil. Uh, reserves have just been a total curse for it. Uh, Nigeria in, 19, in the 1960s, when it began exporting oil, was a, a fairly promising country. Since then, it's exported or received about $400 billion in oil revenues, but Nigerians, more of them report today than they used to be. One out of five Nigerians dies before the age of five. Yeah. Corruption is out of control, and there's a war going on in the Niger Delta. And so I went into the Niger Delta, and I had to get the permission not of the government, but of the local warlord, because he's the one who controlled the creeks. And I, I went into the creeks, and it's just like a, a vast kind of wetlands area, but not like kind of the Everglades, which are very beautiful. But uh, imagine the Everglades if there were oil installations, you know, every few miles, oil installations that were ringed by electric fences and surrounded by government troops flaring in amounts that, you know, really would be illegal in America, oil wells in the creeks that are dripping oil into the into the water itself and then you have these very modern facilities which are like fortresses the oil facilities and right across the creek from them and i stayed in one of these little villages it's just absolute third world poverty where the villages have no running water no electricity no medicine no health care anything of that sort so and you have a war going on between the people who live in these conditions of just total squalor and government and police troops who are protecting the largely American installations um, from attack. And it's just the most kind of depressing of paradoxes that all this wealth, which is you know, making our lives so very nice here in America, um, is just going directly out of the ground, leaving nothing behind for these people except for an amazing amount of pollution and a heck of a lot of violence. And this has been going on for, for years and years and years. And it's part of this kind of Strange to think of it, but invisibility of oil. You know, we think the cost is what we pay at the pump, but you know, actually on the other side of the pipeline, there are these other costs, and they're the costs in terms of, of people whose lives have been degraded as a result of, of, of our need for oil rather than their lives you know, being improved. We're speaking with Peter Moss. The book is Crude World, The Violent Twilight of Oil. Would you say Nigeria is about the... Uh, country that's worst affected by the resource curse? You know, Nigeria is certainly uh, the major one. I mean, you know, Iraq is, a, is another country which is, and we've already kind of talked about the political aspects of, of U.S. policy, but, you know, that's a country which has suffered several decades of warfare and dictatorship. And, you know, there are other factors involved in that, of course, but, you know, oil certainly is a central one. Iranian, Iran has had a very tumultuous history. I mean, its income levels are higher now than they used to be, and that's due to oil, but then politically it's in, uh, had a very complicated history that that's been related to, to, to oil, the American coup that was staged there in the 1950s that really kind of like deflected this democratic direction that Iran was going in. And you also have even little countries. There's one, uh, Equatorial Guinea, which I went to, is West Africa, not too far from Nigeria. And it recently became an oil exporter. And it has one of the most dictatorial leaders on the planet, a guy named Theodore Obiang, who's been in power for 30 years and threw out his uncle, who he then executed. And the first several hundred million dollars of money that American oil companies paid to the government of Equatorial Guinea were put into secret bank accounts controlled by Obiang. And, 
you know, the end result of which, for me at least, is that I went to this country, and, and after seven or eight days of going around and asking people where the money was and, and what the political conditions were, uh, the information minister came to me and said, you're being expelled, you're a spy. And um, in order to kind of stop things from, from really going out of control because he started becoming very aggressive and slapping me and threatening to take me downtown for a real interrogation. I just said, to him, look, stop, because if you touch me again, your president is never going to go to America again, and you're going to have very big troubles with the American government. And this stopped the minister dead in his tracks because he and his government needed that relationship. It was vitally important to them. And so it showed to me, unfortunately, you know, oil saved me, but it, it, it wasn't seeming to save the people of Equatorial Guinea. You know, you just alluded to something, um, Peter Moss, the, about all of this. When The more you describe this, the more I read in your book and, and about the subject, the more this feels like a mafia operation. Essentially, there are, you, if, you, if you play ball, and meaning, you know, you just allow countries to, or companies and countries to come in and develop and exploit your resources, everything will be fine. You get your money, we get our oil, and we're done with it. We don't care what you do with money, that's your business. You don't take care of your people, that's your business. And otherwise, it's just, it seems like a mob operation. It it certainly does seem like that. And, you know, I went, it was really fascinating because I, one of the things that I did in this book is try to talk to, you know, oilmen, oil executives, uh, deal makers, and find out what's kind of going on behind the scenes. And and so one of the people that I ended up interviewing was a guy named Jim Giffen, who had been indicted in 2003 for $80 million in bribery in Kazakhstan. And the wonderful thing, Giffen's a, a kind of larger-than-life character, and, and he's actually the, 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 the model for, for this uh, character in the film Syriana, a kind of sleazy lawyer who has these, this famous little line in there about uh, how you know, corruption is, is what keeps us warm, corruption is why we win. And, and Giffen, who kind of proudly points to himself as being the model for this character in Syriana, he explained to me, he said, look, you know, um, I, I was there doing these things, and I'm not contesting what the government accuses me of doing. His defense, actually, is that all the while that he was making these deals, representing the Kazakh government with American companies, and, you know, maybe $80 million being diverted here or there, he was also working for the CIA. Yeah. And this is why, actually, his case, which he was indicted in 2003, hasn't come to trial yet, because, in fact, he did have a relationship with a variety of U.S. intelligence agencies, none of which are willing to provide the information to even the prosecution about what that relationship consisted of. So, you know, if you talk about mafia and, and, you know, the people breaking laws or whatever, the lawbreakers themselves, the guys who kind of get caught holding the bag, as it were, are just kind of the beginning of things there. Right. You know, there are governments behind it who are involved and want them to be doing these things. And this is what Giffen said to me. It's like, you know, why you, I was there. I was an American who was the right-hand man of a foreign leader who had a lot of oil, and the American government wanted me to be there. And you can't now prosecute right. me for doing things that really the government here approved of. And, and that's kind of something that's important to remember, that we don't want to look only at kind of like, the frontline players, because there are players behind that. And, you know, behind the government, our government, which is involved in these places, there is just our desire for gasoline to be as cheap as possible. Yeah. If that means, okay, fine, a little bribery here, a little pollution there, another war there, okay. Well, let, and let's be fair. I mean, the uh, uh, Gazprom uh, out, out of the Russia is, is about as corrupt and brutal and as ugly a mob operation as you'll find. So I don't want to 
It's 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 everywhere. I, I want a last question, and it's a, it, let's end on this one. There's a lot of talk about the the situation, the developing situation along in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and the pipeline. There's a, a lot of speculation about the pipelines coming out of the Caspian and the Black Sea, and and along uh, Uzbekistan and all these these, and how the United States is constructing ba- bases that seem to mirror the 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 route, or at least uh, shadow the route of these pipelines. Uh, is this something that you see yourself in all of this, and is this something that is a very real sort of security threat uh, uh, to the United States? I don't. I don't see the, the the military bases as being placed where they are primarily, or even to a significant degree, because this is going to help with pipelines or whatever. I mean, you know, we now have so many bases that are part of the what was called and still is by some people war on terror that it would be hard to kind of like put bases somewhere without them being near potential places where one day somebody might like to build a pipeline or has plans to build a pipeline. So I don't see the the sighting of the bases as being related to where we want to build pipelines. And there are always discussions everywhere. Oil men are always talking about building pipelines and finding oil here, there, or whatnot. And so the fact that there are discussions of that sort and then a war breaks out in the same area doesn't mean that uh, one is directly related to the other. Okay. All right. Well, this is terrific. This is a wonderful book. And by the way, The Violent Twilight of Oil, I I hope that that means – uh, and I hope I'm hopeful that we're ending we the get era. Get over it soon. Yeah, <laughs> the en- ending an era. This uh, this dirty, dirty energy. Uh, it will eventually go away, like uh, like whale oil or something like that. Uh, thank you. So. Yeah, I th- thank you so much. Uh, the book is uh, the Crude World: The Twilight, The Violent Twilight of Oil. We've been speaking with Peter Moss. Thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.